Hello and welcome to The Rating Room. My name is Jay. And I'm Andy. Here on The Rating Room we're going to be talking movies and TV shows. This is our first season. We're going to be focusing on the James Bond franchise. So sit back, relax and enjoy the show. This is episode five, You Only Live Twice. Andy, over to you. Okay, so a quick summary of the film. Bond is dispatched to Japan after American and Soviet spacecrafts, spacecrafts even, disappear. Uh, each nation is blaming the other. We're in the midst of the Cold War here, so one side's blaming the other. Um, Bond travels to a secret Japanese island to find the perpetrators and comes face-to-face -face with his archenemy, Ernst Stavro Blofeld, the head of Spectre. Um, so, Jay, what do you remember about the film before you rewatched it? Yeah, I remember quite a bit. You know, when we had the um, Thunderball, I didn't remember much of that one. But this one, I did remember um, quite a few things. I think this film, thinking back to my childhood, it must have been on quite a lot, you know, in terms of being on TV. So I remember that James Bond died um, in this film. I remember the... Volcano Island, in terms of the, the big base that Blofeld had. Um, also, Bond getting his surgery as well. Uh, he, he's, he obviously gets married in this film as well. I remember the sumo wrestling as well. But also, I remember, I recall as well, this is the first time you actually see um, the full, you know, on screen um, appearance of Blofeld. And the the submarine as well i recall that quite clearly you know in terms of the his funeral and him getting picked up in the sea and then coming on and you know the the bit about um m being there as well um how about you andy there's quite a lot, obviously a lot there that i i recalled uh, yeah you've, you've picked up on quite a few things i think I, I didn't remember quite so much i remember the opening scene uh, which we'll get onto in a little bit where it looks like one spaceship eats the other Kind of with this, the the mouth of the the ship um, opens and then swallows the other the other spaceship rocket I guess um, uh, I remember the death scene when Bond died um, in the fold up bed I thought that was um, quite a good good scene a very memorable I remember they got married and I remember him like you said the surgery him becoming Japanese um, very distasteful I would say in terms of um, you know, r uh, racial sensitivities, but it's obviously integral to the plot of the film, but still a little bit uncomfortable to watch. I didn't remember uh, the fact that Blofeld appeared or the sumo, sumo wrestling or, or any of the other stuff. That was that was about it for me. But clearly, you've uh, you had a better memory of it than me. So let's um, let's go into a bit more detail about the film. So the, we've got a few villains in this one. Obviously, Blofeld we've mentioned is uh, uh, a recurring character in a lot of the Bond films. Um, he's flanked by Mr. Asato and Helga Brandt as well, who are associates of Spectre. And so we've got a number of Bond girls in this film. We've got Helga Brandt, who is a villain and a Bond girl, um, as I stated. Uh, we've got Kissy Suzuki, we've got Aki, and we've got Ling. Um, and a little 
side note about Ling, uh, the actress who plays Ling um, is also in a Daniel Craig Bond some 39 years later. She appears in Casino Royale, so a double appearance for the actress um, and quite far apart as well. Uh, the theme song, as the name of the film suggests, the theme song is You Only Live Twice. This was sung by Nancy Sinatra. And in the opening credits, we've got all kinds of scenes around um, sort of Asian and Japanese influence. We've got silhouettes of Asian models and ladies and volcanoes as well, which is integral to the, uh, the, the film later on, as you will listen to. Uh, what else can you tell us, Jay? Yeah, so You Only Live Twice has the highest bond count so far, Andy, uh, of the, the five films that we've seen. Um, I anticipate that going up higher, but it's 21 kills in this movie, so it's quite busy compared to the, the other films that we've covered so far. In terms of gadgets, obviously, you know, we are keeping an eye on the gadgets that he's using. So in this one, um, as it's been the theme with the last couple, it, it has kicked on in terms of gadgets. So we've got the mini rocket cigarette, We've got the waterproof body bag. Uh, we have the introduction of Little Nelly. Uh, we've also got the gyro jet rocket guns. And finally, the safe cracking machine that he uses um, when he's at Asato's um, chemical um, headquarters. Also, so we're also keeping track in terms of time it takes for Bond to say the iconic, iconic Bond, James Bond line. And he doesn't say it in this movie, Andy. So he hasn't said it in um, a couple of movies that we've had so far. So I know we've said this before. We thought this was something that he pretty much said in every film, but we've also we've we've seen already. He he hasn't said it a number of times in terms of what we've covered, and we can kind of cover that again later on um, when we go through the ratings and rankings. So yeah, so um, you know, as we said in the the previous podcast, we're also tracking does he drink a martini um and if he does does it explicitly say shaken not stirred and in this movie andy he does drink a martini but henderson actually um gives him the drink and it's stirred not shaken so you know interesting it is yeah a little kind of i think it must have been an intentional nod to the audience you know in terms of and the shake and not stay, but they kind of done a, a, little, a little in-joke there, I think, how they, they switched it around. And um, obviously, Bond still drinks it. I think he says, oh, perfect, doesn't he, when he is actually um, is handed the drink from Henderson. How about what other things are we tracking at the moment, Andy? Yeah, so the, the hat throw and the, whether he's wearing a hat or not. And we've got a yes on both counts. So he's back in business on the hat front. Um. Okay, let's talk about some favourite scenes. What what was your favourite scene of the movie? Yeah, this one, there was two that jumped out um, when, you know, when I watched it, I thought, oh, yeah. And then afterwards, I was thinking, oh, just kind of recap. And I, the, the, the two that I thought was really good was the, the, the where he was escaping the docks. So, you know, where he's obviously at the docks with Aki. Um, and then you've got, the, the aerial shot where he's being chased by um, like the henchman, um, but the camera, and you can see when he's kind of passing on the roof, different stages, you can see more of them kind of coming in to shot. And then you see Bond kind of like fighting with a bit and then it's progressing um, a bit more. I thought that was really good. But also I like the bit at the end where Tanaka, obviously Bond's at the volcano, um, and Kissy's gone to get some help and Tanaka comes 
and he's at the top and you think, oh, it's just kissing and Tanaka. But then obviously then the ninjas appear and then they start descending into battle um, in terms of, you know, going through the, the hangar doors, you know, the, the sliding hangar doors there um, as well. I thought that was really good. Those are the two scenes that kind of jumped out to me. What about you, Andy, in terms of, did you, well, what was your best scene? So I had the same two scenes in mind, but as we'll get onto later, the second scene that you talked about uh, annoyed me a little bit. Um, but the rooftop scene, um, it was a bit cheesy. It was a bit hokey. Uh, it kind of reminded me of a video game, uh, when especially, especially the aerial shots where you just see these villains appearing from around the corner and Bond taking them down. It was uh, it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it, but it was it was silly. If you're looking for realism, that's not where to find it. But it was uh, it was a fun scene, um, and I actually thought the aerial shot worked quite well, even though there you know there was that that video game hokey element to it but it it was a it was a good scene yeah i think that's a good point where you said about the the video scene because obviously when you play video games when you progress in um, a level obviously you get to certain checkpoints or points that then kind of initiate the villains to come on screen and you're right there when they're doing the aerial shot because you can kind of see him can't you lurking and then as he's moving they start slowly closing in at certain points so yeah that's a, um, a good point there. Uh, so how many times did you reach for your phone whilst you're watching this? Zero, but I nearly reached for it once. But I remembered that I reached for the phone once or twice in the last film and it was the first time. So I um, I was really disciplined this time, Andy. I was really, um, you know, focused on the film. Um, how about you? Were you well behaved? Now four or five times, uh, as we'll you know we'll talk about the ratings in a second. But it was just starting to get on my nerves. It was a bit boring. It was it, the film felt a bit flat, and I, I was distracted by my phone a few times. I was um, quite a few times. I needed I needed just a break from the screen for a second. Yeah, and like you said, in terms of the ratings, so you know, listeners that have listened to the first few episodes will know. Each of these um, films are marked, you know, we're giving them a score out of 10. And we're going to cover it later on as well, a bit more in depth. But I've given this one, Andy, um, six out of 10. How about you? Six out of 10 as well, which I think for me is on par with Dr. No, the first film. But this one, yeah, it just it felt a bit flat, particularly after, you know, we've had some real highs with the Connery Bond so far. But this one felt a little bit flat to me. Yeah, I agree. Um, we, we can obviously go through the, the ratings and rankings later and talk about it a bit more in depth. So, you know, next, the last bit before we start kind of getting into the film is the wife verdict. So, um, yeah, this one didn't go well, with go down well with the wife, Andy. <laughs> uh, I think, you know, we're probably going to touch on these kind of elements later on. There were a few times that... Um, the missus kind of huffed and puffed and muttered during this film. So um, in terms of when it finished, I said, oh, you know, what? I, I made some notes as she was like muttering on um, in, in terms of the film. And um, so she said it was um, very sexist, racist. Um, also, she didn't like that. There were, there were quite a few scenes. I don't know if you found it as well. I, I only noticed it because she kind of highlighted it where they were talking in, um, say Japanese, I think it was Japanese and these particular bits, but there were no subtitles. Um, and you know, in some films, there might be small pieces of dialogue where they don't put a subtitle on there 
it's just an interaction between characters on screen. Um, but this scene, like when um, the missus pointed it out, it, it did kind of highlight it to me in terms of there were, it just seemed there were longer scenes or longer pieces of dialogue that had no subtitles. So you can kind of interpret what they're talking about. But, you know, that is one of the things she, she did mention. But also, she said this was the movie that really made, showed Bond as a male chauvinistic, um, kind of like a, a male chauvinistic pig, really, and also um, very shallow, which I think it is. I think that there were underlying um, themes in the first four films that we've, you know, we've kind of covered in the episodes, but this is the one that really kind of highlighted a lot of things. Um, I know, obviously, your missus isn't watching these, Andy, but what about those kind of comments? Is do you kind of can you relate to those kind of comments? Yeah, absolutely. The um, the sexism is is almost a given with Bond. It's it's always been a tag that's been labelled against him, so that doesn't surprise me. Racist, yes, for sure. Um, the the old argument of it was a different time, I guess, comes into play here. But you know, it's the this day and age, it's completely unnecessary. Some of the stuff that was going on in this film, uh, and yeah, the. Uh, the chauvinistic and shallow side really, really came out. Bond's, Bond's starting to show his true colours here. Um, for a, for a hero, he's he's got a few black marks in his book now. Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, so that's that's the wife verdict. Um, and yeah, I have to agree with both of you um, as well in terms of those points. So Andy, um, take us into um, some of our facts then. Okay, so. Uh, this was the fifth film in the series. An hour and 57 minutes was the runtime. Quite similar to what we've seen so far. We've not seen too much variation in runtime, so an hour 57 is is about normal uh, for the for this era of Bond. Uh, released in 1967, this is the first time we've got a gap of a year. Um, so the first four were released consecutive years between 62 and 65. Then we've got a gap through to 67 for this one, which is the first time we've seen that. But we will see that in future films, as we all discussed over the weeks ahead. And this was the first Bond film directed by Lewis Gilbert. He will direct three in total. Um, he was originally, he originally declined the offer to direct this, but he was convinced to take it on after a call from Cubby Broccoli himself. So uh, obviously very persuasive is Mr. Broccoli in this case. Um, yeah, this is, this is Lewis's first director of Bond yeah, let me say that in English. This is the first of three Bond films that Lewis directed. So uh, interesting to see how this compares to the two we've got coming up in the future. Yeah, so you'll obviously enjoyed filming if he comes back um, for a further two films. And it's a bit of a recurring theme, isn't it, Andy, in terms of the directors? And to, to be honest, it's not one of the things that we're tracking in terms of our ratings or rankings or kind of like, you know, the Martini watch and the hat throw, is it, in terms of the directors? We are, we are stating, as we do each episode, how many Bond films each director has done. But there is a recurring theme that the Bond directors do tend to come back, don't they, um, at some point during the series? Yeah, and I think, again, another thing we're not particularly tracking too closely, but it's the same for some of the actors as well. We see recurring either recurring parts or we see multiple parts played by the same actor, particularly in these early days. So that's something we'll be discussing as we get through as well. Yes. Okay. So yeah, thanks for that, Andy, in terms of some of the facts. Um, so also 
before we kind of get into the the film, so like like, like we usually do, we're not going to cover it scene by scene. We're going to talk about some general points, and then we're going to talk about some observations. So, some of the general points we we've kind of picked up on in terms of you only live twice is that during the filming of this, um, Sean Connery actually announced that this was going to be his last Bond. So. We, we have touched on this in terms of the promotional work in a previous episode, but Sean Connery has spent a lot of time obviously doing the filming and lots of the promotional work. And this was impacting on his ability to take other roles. Um, so one of the things that the producers managed to do to convince Connery to stay on for You Only Live Twice was to give him a pay rise because originally he signed on for a number of films and obviously contractually his salary would have been stated and agreed in, in those contracts. But obviously they managed to give him a pay rise to keep him to do You Only Live Twice. So that's I thought that was an interesting point, Andy. Um, also, in terms of the, the promotional work, the, the cinema's stated um, in terms of the poster work that Sean Connery is James Bond, so he emphasised the is. And that's because the independent Casino Royale, not to be confused with obviously the Daniel Craig Casino Royale, was actually released two months earlier. So they were making a clear point that this is the actual official franchise for James Bond. So I thought that was interesting. I don't know, Andy, before going to the next couple of points, if you have any kind of views on those two, those two points I've kind of picked up on. Yeah, interesting. I think quite smart of, uh, of the company to promote Sean Connery as such. I think the Casino Royale film uh, was, was it intended as a spoof? Was it intended as an homage? Um, certainly they're trying to cash in on the, the success that Bond had had so far, but the timing is... Uh, is very interesting in terms of the, how close they were released and that's not going to be accidental is it so um it almost feels like we have a bit of a bond war going on bond versus bond yeah definitely um and you know in terms of my next two points as well was that the the first four bond films are obviously very popular we've discussed um in the previous episodes you know some of the the box office returns that was um seen for those films but the the first four bond films are really popular in japan andy so eon who obviously produced these films wanted to kind of take advantage in terms of like the asian market by making this movie because obviously you know there's the book as well and as we know we've covered in previous episodes they haven't filmed the the movies in the order of the books they've, they've moved the um the order around so i thought that was interesting but also you know as a lot of movies as you know as the years go by the production costs increase so i thought this was an interesting point so obviously there there's a gap between fundable and this one um and the production cost, so you only live twice, is a higher, has the highest um, production cost, but only slightly in terms of fundable. So fundable was um, nine, um, nine million, and you only live twice was nine point five million dollars. Um, but actually, you only live twice took thirty million less in terms of box office returns compared to fundable. So it was obviously um a massive box office success so in terms of the box office returns it took in um, over 111 million dollars compared to the the budget which was 9.5 so obviously you know a massive profit there but this is actually the first time in the series where the the box office revenue declined 
whereas you know the previous four movies had a year um, a movie on movie increase in terms of revenue but this is the first time they've seen a slight reduction and it you know doing a bit of research for the podcast it turns out that we've obviously mentioned about Casino Royale which was um, a flop but they there was other spy movies being released around those times as well so obviously James Bond came out and other um, production studios saw how popular it was so then they started to to develop um, their own kind of stories so the market kind of became a bit saturated at that point yeah saturation is the is the key point here i think you know too much of a good thing means that everyone loses out and this is a perfect example of that i also wonder as well based on our rankings and our rankings alone whether the the thunderball movie being not quite as good as goldfinger arguably you know less whilst commercially very successful maybe artistically not as much maybe that put people off going to see it to an extent just hypothesizing there obviously cannot prove that but it's certainly an interesting time period overall like you said with the the saturation and the the bond versus bond element uh, so speaking of the budget um you mentioned 9.5 million dollars was the budget for the entire movie a million dollars of that went for building the volcano set this uh, i don't want to kind of go off topic here but it's kind of related i was watching a film with one of my kids um the other day and the, the the film basically had a mansion being blown up and they were saying like but what you know is that a real house that they're blowing up and when you think about it they 5.7 million in today's money spent on a massive um set it's just crazy when you think about it because obviously then they're not going to re- reuse that set again are they and it's just like you know build it and then take it down um but obviously, you know, and whereas nowadays, I suppose a lot of it is um, CGI, wouldn't they? I bet green screen or blue screen, some of these they could do as well. Yeah, that's true. The um, it, it seems quite frivolous in a way that you yeah. build something so elaborate and then, like you said, just tear it down. And then what does it get put in storage? Does it get destroyed? Do you have to make a volcano movie as a result? Um, all kinds of things to try and recoup some of that cost just kind of moving on to some other things about the film so queen elizabeth ii attended the premiere in leicester square um queenie loves a good bond film like the rest of us i guess uh this was something that i didn't realize until we were doing research but the screenplay for this was written by roald dahl um obviously famous children's author i don't i wouldn't normally associate roald dahl with james bond so i was quite surprised to learn that yeah, so this was the first screenplay that Dahl actually completed, and he delivered a first draft in six weeks. He decided to do quite a similar plot to Doctor No, and obviously took inspiration from the spacewalk by the Soviet Union and the United States at the time. Bear in mind, this is 1967, so this is two years before the famous moon landing, so the space travel was, was relatively new, uh, obviously very big in the news around that time in the US and the Soviet Union, so Dahl took inspiration from that for his screenplay of this movie yeah thanks Andy. i think yeah in terms of um well dow um i he i i knew he did a bond film just because my dad loves chitty chitty bang bang and um Rodal and whenever that's on my dad always says oh he wrote a James Bond film um so yeah I can't remember which one it was um only as part of our preparation for this podcast but yeah it's it's interesting that 
he had a bit of a free reign um, in terms of um, doing the um, the screenplay for this. Obviously, he's, he's a successful um, writer anyway. So yeah, thank you for that. Um, in terms of like, in terms of some, some other areas just to cover, um, I kind of touched on this actually at the beginning in terms of what I remember. So this is the first time we and Bomb comes face to say face to face with Blofeld um, in this movie because obviously in the other ones that we've we've discussed, he, he only makes partial appearances, and as we've discussed as well, he's been played by different actors in real life. So um, yeah, so this is the first time that we. We see him in all his glory. And also, originally, um, Honor Majesty's Secret Service was intended to be the next film after Thunderball. Um, and they were actually going to include a, a plot twist that turned out that Blofeld was actually Goldfinger's twin brother. And they actually recruited an actor, I can't remember his name, and they did some scenes with him, but he just wasn't working. So they've obviously cut that out and went ahead with You Only Live Twice um, instead of On A Majesty's Secret Service, which is obviously um, the next film. So what other points did you did you find, Andy? So this was quite a fascinating one in terms of the production staff avoided disaster. So the group were returned, due to return on a flight, but well, they cancelled their plans because they wanted to watch a ninja demonstration, which you know, there's, of which there's one in the film. And the flight they were in Brooklyn crashed and it killed everyone on board. So that would have been a, a very different story altogether. Um, you know, one of those miracles almost where they, for some reason, they took the decision not to take the flight and it was probably the best decision they ever made. Yes. Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, crazy stuff. Um, also, this, this film was pretty much entirely in one country, which is quite a deviation from bond films we've seen so far which are usually spread out across a variety of locations and even you know even the the big budget of this film didn't really allow for much travel i guess so it was almost entirely in one country and the final thing just kind of linked to that is this is the first bond where seven doesn't finish does not visit britain at all so there's no there's no uk scenes as it were um, and we also, you know, based on that, we also don't get MI6 headquarters, which is in Britain. So that's the, it's uh, an interesting footnote. Yeah, they really um, dived all in, didn't they, in terms of, um, you know, filming in Japan and, you know, in terms of the ninja demonstration and in terms of like some of the research that we've done, they, they visited a lot of places in Japan, filmed on location, um, like we said, for the majority of the the movie as well so yeah they, they really went um full in um in terms of filming over in japan um also in terms of um some other a couple of last points um for me andy before we kind of get into the opening scene um kissy suzuki was taken from the novel but aki and helga were actually created as part of the screenplay you know screenwriting um process um in terms of this movie so that i thought that was quite interesting that, that they've used one of the characters from the novel but obviously had to create two because what we we've seen in the first four films include well this one as well the fifth film is that there's always more than one bond girl isn't there so there's always a bit of a formula in terms of um yeah one or two 
good Bond girls, and then you have like a bit of a, a villain Bond girl, which is obviously Helga that you mentioned earlier. Um, and also another um, interesting point was that um, Kissy Suzuki, um, the actress, couldn't swim in real life. Um, and also there was a number of other um, Japanese actresses that couldn't swim. And Sean Connery's then wife, um, Diana, um, Diane, sorry, actually filmed those swimming scenes um, for those actresses. I thought that was um, quite interesting. Well, that, yeah, that's a good point. I didn't, I didn't realise that until until the research, but um, I guess that's one way to keep the cost down, isn't it? If you just hire one of your mates, or in this case, your wife. That's, um, that's a good a good note. Let's let's get into the film in a bit more detail. So the opening scene, before we get to the titles, uh, we've got a NASA spacecraft minding its own business in space where all of a sudden an unidentified spaceship comes along and hijacks it. Um, this is the scene I referred to earlier where it looks like one is swallowing the other. Um, and then we see talks being held between the Americans and the Russians and the UK is playing peacekeeper between the two. Uh, Bond is enjoying himself in a hotel room uh, when all of a sudden he is killed. Um, you know, rest in peace, James Bond. You will be missed. Um, quite a, a nifty scene where he's in a kind of a fold-up bed where the, the bed folds into the wall and then shots are fired and the body is found. Um, and one of the... Uh, I guess it, police that were investigating all come to find the body quipped that um, at least he died on the job, um, which is a, a nice little nod to uh, not only the fact that he's an agent, but also he was, you know, in bed at the time. We don't need to explain that any further. I'm sure you understand <laughs> what I'm getting at. Um, and then that leads us into the opening title sequence. Yeah. One of the things, um, I've, you know, we, we've not documented Andy, but it was something on my mind was, We've, we've obviously highlighted that Sean Connery looks older than he actually is in one of the earlier podcasts. But for me, even though there was a year gap between Thunderbolt and this film, do you think he seems to have aged quite a bit more than the, the, the year gap? Because when me and, and the missus started watching that, if I didn't know there was only like one year gap between, as in like, you know, two years, because there was like one year gap, it would seem to me that there was a, a long, a larger gap than based on his appearance. I don't know what did I felt that, you know, in the first few, you know, in the first four films, it was well toned. Um, and I won't say youthful, because we both said we look younger than what he was in an earlier podcast and we're older than he was at that point. But what did you, did you notice that? Cause I noticed that like when it first came on, I thought, Oh, he's aged a bit already. Um, and you know he's put on a, yeah, a bit more. I completely agree. I didn't. Yeah. Completely agree. I thought if if I didn't know how old he was based on the research, I would have said this is the film where he was starting to show his age. Whereas actually, yeah. he was starting to show an age of someone about fifteen years older than him. Because <laughs> at, at this time, nineteen sixty-seven, he would have been what thirty-six years old. So even still younger than we both are right now. Um, and yeah, he was he was looking. Like this was, he was on his last legs almost. You know, he's he's had a tough life as a as a secret agent. It's really taken it out of him. Um, kind of reminds me of the uh, the Twitter account with eighties footballers aging badly. Uh, free plug there for whoever owns and runs that account. I've had a lot of fun with that over the last few days. But he's he was yeah. You would you wouldn't guess he was mid to late thirties. You would guess probably pushing fifty. I would say. 
Yeah, and um, to be fair, though, I'd still probably take his body over mine at the moment, even though it looks like <laughs> 50s. Uh, yeah. He's still a better shape than me. But yeah, it's he just looks something... older than we are, not necessarily older than we look. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, so we, we've had the opening scene, as Andy just mentioned, and that, you know, I think that was brilliant in terms of he's on the bed. And then it kind of the camera kind of focuses on the the blood that's kind of coming through on the bed sheets, and then it's straight into the title sequence and music. So Andy um, obviously mentioned that Nancy Sinatra um, sang "You Only Live Twice," but it actually turned out that the the producers approached her dad, Frank Sinatra, who declined um, to sing the title song um, for this movie, which obviously then opened up the opportunity for Nancy Sinatra to sing the title song. Um, and similar to one of the previous films, I can't remember which one it is, Andy. Uh, my memory's going now, I'm 40. But there's actually two versions of the Only Live Twice song. Um, the one that's in the in the movie, um, in terms of the movie soundtrack, but which has the um like the Asian influence at the beginning, you know, when it kicks in and you've got that little bit of um Asian kind of music as well. The other version that um, Nancy Sinatra included on her records um, was minus those little bits um, as well. So there's actually two different versions um, of that one song. And I know as part of our research, Andy, we we also found out um, a couple of other things, didn't we, in terms of um, the music? Yeah, so there was a, a completely different title song recorded by Julie Rogers that was discarded. And another version of the theme song by Lorraine Chandler was discovered in the 90s. So um, various versions or indeed completely different songs out there if you can find them. Um, One final thing from me in terms of the opening credits. um, It must have been very cold when they were filming those because there's a lot of very pointy nipples. Yes, I know it's childish and I'm in my mid-30s and I should know better, but... It was just nipples everywhere. It did when when I saw those. It did remind me of um, Goldfinger. You know, Pussy Galore's um, pilots. You know, where that scene where they go to Goldfinger's um, stud farm and um, Pussy Galore's um, pilots come off the planes and they're all there. And the missus made a comment about the the pointy bras and that. Yeah. That did remind me of um, yeah, <laughs> um, So, yeah, so we've, we've had the title sequence and, you know, the movie sequence. Um, and we go straight into um, the next scene, which is um, the submarine. And obviously Bond is dead now, so he's being buried at sea. And the, they, they push the body um, over um, into the sea. And as you see, there's two divers that pick up the body. Um, this then obviously then goes on to the, the transport the body to the, the submarine. Um, and the one thing I noticed, Andy, straight away was that um, the, the Navy men were wearing some very long, sexy white socks. So that's where my mind went straight away. Um, there were, I think it was about was it four or five of them kind of carrying the body through the hatch of the submarine. And they were just wearing really long um, white socks with shorts and um, that scene was actually filmed in winter <laughs> so apparently the actors were moaning that it was um, very cold where they were filming those in kind of like um, I don't know if you say tropical um, locations but it was actually winter when they filmed those ones 
interesting point. So I think what our listeners have gathered now is that you're a leg man and I'm a breast man. <laughs> um, but let's let's stay on point and let's talk more about the submarine. So M is in in the office that he's got on the submarine. I thought this was very very elaborate. You know, this is clearly a temporary office. He doesn't work permanently on the submarine. He's got the headquarters of MI6 where he's got his pretty snazzy office. But this was a very um, very fancy setup for something that's just a temporary solution, and I just wonder whether that is a bit of a waste of government money. There, um, should he just, you know, surely he just needs a table and some pens and paper. Uh, what more can you need in 1967? But no, he needed all kinds of fancy furniture and pictures on the wall, and yeah, just just a little thing that I noticed that it was seemed seemingly wasting government money. I wouldn't be happy if I was a taxpayer in 1967. That's for sure. <laughs> I agree. Uh, I, when I when I saw that, Andy, I thought the same in terms of he, he very much. Um, there were no hot desks in there, was there? He very personalised the whole work area um, there, and definitely there didn't seem to have any efficiency savings that they needed to make um, at that time. I, I bet about fifty-one weeks out of the year that room's just empty because no one dare move <laughs> anything. So a complete waste. Um, we also have Miss Moneypenny. She's on the submarine, so she's out on location for the first time. Uh, her and, and James have their, their usual banter, dare we say, a little back and forth. Nothing too egregious or outrageous, just some, some nice friendly chatter that, that we've come to expect from the two of them. Um, and then Bond is given a book of languages by Moneypenny. He says you know, he'll need that, and he throws it back to her and says... He doesn't need it because he took Oriental languages at Cambridge, um, which seems a very broad um, subject to take at one of the leading universities in the world. And I wonder exactly what that means. Yes. So what do you reckon, Andy? And what is Oriental what Oriental languages? Let's think. What would it be? So we think Chinese, Japanese. What other languages would we say? Because that's two complex languages straight away, I think. I mean, that's that's going to be your two big ones, I would think. But I'm sure there are hundreds, if not thousands, of others that we're unaware of. So is Taiwanese a language? I think there's more multiple languages spoken in China alone, probably multiple languages spoken in Japan as well. Um, but just putting them all under this catch-all term <laughs> is is either it's a very very wide-ranging course, or it's a little bit of laziness on behalf of. The, the film writers because they, they didn't want to narrow it down to a specific country. So it's just in the general area. Yeah. No, I, I um, totally agree. So, yeah, so we found out a bit more about um, what he Bond did um, at Cambridge. Um, yeah, so Andy, obviously, you know, you mentioned about Miss Money Penny. Um, I don't know if you've seen any news in the last couple of weeks, but there's been um, kind of like some articles about having a Miss Money Penny spin-off so it wouldn't be a, a film necessarily it would be um a tv show for example in the um james bond universe but it wouldn't necessarily feature james bond keep james bond exclusively to you know the film cinema etc but kind of focus on miss Pun- money penny in a um in a tv series what's what's your kind of thoughts on that would you like to kind of dig a bit deep in that character or is that something you'd not be interested in um, on the surface, I would say it sounds like a good idea. Certainly commercially, you would think there'd be a lot of interest there. I do wonder, though, whether there's enough 
range in what she does um, in terms of, you know, getting a whole series out of it. And also, obviously, if she is the central character and from our experience so far, she's basically stuck behind a desk for the most part. Is there is there much scope to go out in the field? Is she going to get heavily involved herself or is it going to be a way to introduce other characters, other double O agents or, you know, more focus on M as well? Uh, so I'm, I'm a, a little bit torn. I think conceptually the idea is a, is a solid one, but I wonder whether there's enough to make make it work. Yeah, I mean, when I saw it, I thought, you know, we've obviously got things like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, we've got DC. Um, and in terms of like Marvel, you have the characters have obviously got their own TV show now because of Disney Plus. Uh, but you've got obviously these characters appearing in, you know, different films across that universe. So as a, a James Bond universe, I think it would be something that would be interesting, you know, to see if we have spin-off TV shows might not be necessarily money penny it could be a, a tv show focusing on like you touched on double o of a double o agents um the Mon miss money penny because obviously in the first few films we've seen her as um a secretary um but obviously in this one she's in the naval uniform isn't she so she's obviously got some kind of rank um in terms of the navy so I don't know if it would be uh, like an origin story that they could look at before she en ended up with um, MI6, maybe. Um, it's how, if they did it, focus on her as in the present day, as in, you know, it's alongside James Bond, but you don't see him, is how do you explain her doing missions when she's supposed to be um, secretary? So that's why I'm thinking maybe more of an origin story um, would be interesting. But no, as a... As a James Bond universe, it would be nice to obviously um, dig a bit deeper in terms of, because obviously we get the films every few years, don't we? And sometimes some of the films have quite a few years between them. So as a as a universe, it's something I would be interested in. Yeah, I guess it's akin to Jason Bourne with the Treadstone series. Um, I guess that would be the closest equivalent we've got. Um, and also with, with Amazon Prime, now holding the rights to MGM, or they, you know, they bought the MGM studio, so they've got the rights to the whole Bond franchise. Having an accompanying TV series fits their business model down to the ground. So commercially, I can see it being quite a viable option. I think creatively, I'm on the fence. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we kind of went off topic there. It's just one of those things I just thought about, and obviously, you know, you, you mentioned Amazon have got the catalogue, and it's something I have seen in the the news uh, over the last few weeks so um getting back to you and you live twice so we're in japan now and bond um goes to see his first sumo wrestling match do you call it wrestling or is it a fight sumo wrestling um in the bond series um one thing i did note was he basically turned up late and then he left after the first one <laughs> so he's like yeah so he's really um he obviously only went to meet aki um and did you know the I love you um code phrase as well but uh Andy you you have a great knowledge in terms of bond this isn't the first time is it that we see a sumo match or a sumo wrestler is it in the bond franchise I, re I recall and I don't know which film it is and I don't know if you know off the top of your head um I didn't research it to be honest um I'm sure it's a Roger Moore film um that there's a, a sumo wrestler do you you know 
do you remember um, what that is? I recall the scene. I recall Roger Moore. I don't recall the movie. Yeah, okay. I think I think as we as we get into the the Roger Moore era, they all kind of blend into one for me at, at times. And yes. I think this is one of those where I can't quite pick out which movie is which. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I'm I'm dead set that there is more sumo wrestling later on in the franchise for sure. Yeah. So if there's any listeners that know that, um, feel free to tweet us or contact us on any of our social media links because. I won't be looking that up, <laughs> but feel free to let me know um, to see me looking that up. But yeah, thank you. So Andy, um, we're still in Japan. Um, anything else after the sumo wrestling match and in terms of where we are? Uh, so he's with Aki, as you mentioned. Could have just met her outside, didn't have to go to a sumo fight. Seems a bit of a waste. You know, could have just you know, met in a pub or a restaurant or something, but never mind. Uh, so he's in the car, he's passenger. Aki's driving along um, in her car, which is pretty well kitted out. And we'll, we'll talk about that as we, we go along. The card pulls up to the front of the hotel and Bond is suddenly in the driver's side. So a bit of a continuity error there. Or maybe they flipped the image accidentally, but but Bond is clearly on the other side of the car. So a, a continuity error there. And uh, this is where he goes to meet Henderson. Uh, Henderson played by Charles Gray. Remember that name for future reference. Um, and there is an assassin that kills Henderson. Um, he's wearing a face mask as well, so... Um, Obviously, very, very pre-COVID pandemic. Um, face mask, he's well ahead of the times there. So that was quite a, an interesting observation during these times that we're living, that face masks are now more and more prevalent. But back in 67, not so sure they would be. Um, so that was that was a good one. So I mentioned Henderson obviously is is killed. The the, the scene where he's, he's killed, I, I quite liked it. Um, although there is a bit where... I hit. I thought I'd hit pause on the remote because he's talking away, and then he stops. And there's silence, and he's still. And I'm thinking, oh, have I, have I hit a button or something? But no. What happens is he's he's stood next to the wall, which is is basically paper thin, um, as is as is traditional. And he gets stabbed in the back through the wall. Um, so oblivious to or, you know, James Bond is oblivious to that until such time where he stops talking and falls over dead. But I thought that was quite a, an inventive way to kill someone. Yeah. So um, a couple of things. Um, I I was the same when Henderson died. I thought my DVD had basically froze. Um, so then it kind of um, kicked in, and you, you obviously found out that he, he was stabbed in the back. Um, I, <laughs> I I did wonder whether Bond was secretly thinking, why didn't that happen slightly earlier before I got my stirred martini instead of shaken? So he kind of actually got his proper drink. And so he kind of missed that. But I, I mean, um, the missus was talking about this in terms of when Henderson died, he was so, like we both said, it was frozen. And I, I was saying to the missus, would that happen? Like if you stabbed someone in the back, you would kind of like stagger forward, uh, you would make you would be a bit vocal about it, but then she was saying, "Oh, you know, maybe the knife severed his spine, so he was kind of just like frozen." So I don't know if you had any thoughts of that. I just thought it was a bit of a um, not dodgy, but it was a bit of a funny death, into a bit unrealistic. But then if 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 you can, if you get stabbed in the back and it severed your spine, you know that might be a true representation of that. Um, death but yeah good point about Charles Gray um, appearing again Andy 
Um, that was a good, good find. And in terms of the face mask as well, uh, maybe they didn't have balaclavas in those days. So the, the simple face mask um, sufficed um, in terms of um, some kind of camouflage. Um, but then we've we've got obviously um, you know the the bit of Henderson's house, and then when it's a, 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 a Sato's chemical um, building. We, we picked this up before you can tell it's a stunt man in the fight scenes it's just so obvious isn't it in the the bond franchise that well to be fair it's, it's obvious in the sean connery ones um i don't know if it's as obvious we find that out in the coming weeks in terms of you know future bond actors but it was just so clear um but also uh you and and the missus picked this up as well that they were basically um, just fighting and just picking up furniture and they were just like using it um, as weapons so how light um, was that obviously wasn't any kind of real wood there and uh, they must have gone to Ikea or something there because the, the furniture was just so lightweight but yeah you and um, the Mrs. Base picked up on that point where they're just basically just picking up um, furniture and using that as weapons yeah a weapon of choice a sofa um, <laughs> <laughs> very I mean, who thinks to even pick up a sofa in the first place? But to know that it was as light as it was that you can just pick it up underneath your arm. Um, very, very bizarre. Um, speaking of the fight scene, so this is this is something that probably excites me more than it does you, but the henchman that he's fighting, they, I recognise straight away. Um, and it's uh, a guy by the name of Peter Maivia. Now, for those, for those listeners who maybe don't recognize the name or, or those that do and can't place it. Uh, Peter Maivia uh, is a WWE Hall of Famer, very famous wrestler back in the back in the day and also a Samoan high chief. Um, his daughter married a wrestler by the name of Rocky Johnson. Um, he was dead against that marriage as well. He wasn't having no daughter of his marry a wrestler because he knew he knows what wrestlers are like. He's one himself. But Rocky Johnson and his daughter had a son who you might know a bit more these days as Dwayne the Rock Johnson. So uh, a little uh, nod to my uh, obsession slash interest as a as a wrestling fan. Um, and it was the the one and only film that Peter Maivia appeared in. But he was he was a big star back in the days um, when this was filmed. So so got the part because of his you know being a genuine badass. That was um, a good spot, Andy, because um, obviously I, I don't watch WWE, so I didn't pick that up. So um, that was a, a good spot and obviously linking it to The Rock as well. He was obviously a massive Hollywood actor now. So yeah, definitely a good spot there. Followed, you know, followed in his uh, his granddad's footsteps. I mean, when when The Rock, just going off a tangent, when The Rock first started out, he chose the name Rocky Maivia as homage to his his dad, Rocky Johnson, and his granddad, Peter Maivia. And that's that was his first... Well, one of his first wrestling names was Rocky Maivia, and now to see him as a successful movie star is uh, it's kind of like his foot come full circle there. I wonder if we ever see The Rock in a James Bond film to kind of you know that link because I can't see him being James Bond, but I could easily see him being uh, a henchman. I don't has he ever played a baddie, The Rock? I don't know. I've not seen. I've seen obviously a lot of his films, but he always tends to play. The, the good guy, nothing jumps out. Um, he's he's gen- yeah. more generally been in the hero role, hasn't he? Yeah. In, in the films. I mean, he's been a bad guy in wrestling, but that's that's by the by. 
um, and very entertaining one at that. So he, he certainly got the the acting chops to be a villain should he, he wish to be. But no, I think you're right. I think he's more often than not, maybe always been cast in the hero role. I wonder if that's on his um, to-do list in terms... I know if it was me and um, you've got a relative that's appeared in something and you're in that field of work and you get the opportunity, um, that's definitely something um, I would be interested in. So it'd be interesting to see if that it ever comes... Um, comes out that you know he has the opportunity to be in a in a future james bond or something i'm pretty sure odd job the actual played odd job was a, a pro wrestler at some point as well um and in in a daniel craig film we have dave batista who um was a very successful wrestler multiple time world champion and that's my little side project is is wrestlers in bond um yes very, no, very good monetize that somehow <laughs> <laughs> Let's uh, let's move on. So I mentioned Aki's car, and it started to bother me when she started using some of the equipment. So she's got cameras. Well, she's got sorry, not cameras, like TV screens in the car. So effectively, like a CCTV system is what she's got. Um, and there's a scene where they're being followed by a car, and then a helicopter comes along with a giant magnet. Very Top Gear. This is I, I found, and the giant magnet. Magnet comes down from the helicopter, picks the car up, drops it into the ocean. And all the while, Bond and Aki are watching this take place on the screens in her car. But the, the scenes that are being shown are the same ones that are being used in the film. So unless she has a film crew following her around at all times... This is just completely unrealistic. Like, where where are the cameras that are beaming the images to the car? And does that mean she's just got another helicopter somewhere next to the helicopter that's got the car, and they're just filming? Do you see what I mean? It was just very, very bizarre. I thought the same of you as as you did, but I, I didn't, I didn't. I want to say I overthought it, but when it happened, I was thinking because they're watching it on the TV it has to explain how that camera was um, in the scene because if it, if obviously, you know, when they're over the water and it drops it down from the magnetic um, clampy fin, you can obviously as a viewer, you know, that's explained because it's just a camera, you know, that you're seeing it, but the fact that they're seeing exactly the same, it must, it has to be in the scene for them to see it. You know, as an audience member, you know, they don't need to explain how you can see that. But because they can see it, I thought exactly the same as you. Um, so I thought that was just like, yeah, just unrealistic because obviously this is before drones um, and they haven't actually had Bond hasn't had a gadget drone yet. So you could say, oh, it was on the drone, but it was just it was just silly. And also what I noticed was, you know, when Bond and um, Aki was being chased, the the villains were shooting loads. I don't know if you picked that up with the machine guns. As soon as the helicopter came with a magnet, they just stopped shooting. So if I was in the car, I would just be shooting the helicopter. Shooting they were trying to pick, the yeah. Helicopter. Whereas before they were just yeah. shooting at James Bond loads of times. As soon as the helicopter came, that's it. You'd be like sticking the, you're gone out straight away. Uh, yeah. Um, and just before we move on to the next bit, the other thing I noticed as well was, 
you can only see it a few times because obviously the camera um, is moving between shots and Aki's calling um, for Tanaka's help um, before the helicopter came. But the bits where the camera is behind Bond and Aki and you can see the speedo bit in terms of the speed gauge on the, the car, it was always at zero. Um, so obviously it was stationary, whereas obviously if it was actually moving, it would be going at whatever kilometers or miles per hour. But she's there pretending to steer, but the actual, um, you know, there's the speed um, speedo bit in terms of speed gauge was just constantly um, to the bottom left. It just never raised up. Um, so, yeah, so is there anything, Andy, else that you want to cover before we kind of move on to um, the next part um, on in terms of observations? That's everything that I've got so far. Is that the same with you? Yeah, let's let's move on. Okay, we'll so... Some good scenes coming up. Yeah, so we've, we're transitioning now. Um, there's obviously some other bits, but we, you know... It, we've, we've we've not we, you know we've a satter um so they've left um the chemical um headquarters they've had to chase and now they they're at the docks and obviously we both mentioned that this is um one of our favorite scenes in um the the, the movie um but one of the things i commented to the missus was you know after the chase he's descending from um the roof so he tells um, Aki to go and then he's descending. But instead of climbing downstairs because there's gunfire, he has to kind of flip off and um, leap off of certain levels. And he's always landing on boxes that are covered. And it's just like, it's just lucky that those boxes were really soft or they actually had something in it. And he didn't just fall through a pile of empty boxes. So that was like the thing that I noticed straight away. And was there anything else in terms of... Um, what you saw when we're in the docks yeah so we'll we'll talk about the fight scene in a second but with regards to the boxes why did he always have to do a perfect front flip as well and then on his back just a flat flat back bump would have been fine it seemed uh, a little bit showing off while he's got gunfire blazing all around him but uh, very good form i must say um so the, the fight scene we, we mentioned earlier he's he's on the roof he's being chased by henchmen left right and center and then you see this area where the camera pulls back and he's he's running along the rooftop. He's got a few henchmen behind him. And then you can see in front of him, he's got maybe 20, 30 different henchmen all waiting behind different corners and at different areas of the roof. And he runs along and there's a kick here and there's a punch there and there's a karate chop here and, and down they go flying and then they never get back up. Like, like he is either the deadliest striker that I've ever known or these henchmen are really not good at taking a punch, but they're never heard from again. Yeah, so one of the things, and this, you know, I'm not having a go at anyone, but this is, if you were looking through a catalogue of henchmen, this would be the um, the pound shop kind of level of henchmen, and in terms of how they were going down really quickly, is what I thought. Yeah, they were they were the worst, the worst of the worst. Until the very end, of course, where Bond thinks he's he's high and dry and then he gets bonked on the back of the head and it's all over for him. He gets taken to Helga, which brings us on to the, the next point. Uh, so Helga has him tied to a chair. She's got him banged to rights. Then she lets him go. She has sex with him. And then he's flying her in a plane because he seems to have convinced her to join his side. But then... She tries to kill him by strapping him down in the plane where he's not got access to the controls while she jumps out 
with a parachute and this is all over the place like do you want him dead do you not want him dead are you on his side you're not on his side if the plan is to just kill him you've got him tied to a chair kill him this seems a, a very very elaborate way to to kill him unless of course you want to make it look like an accident but that doesn't explain why she needed to have sex with him beforehand this this frustrated me so the bit about the helicopter that you said in the camera angle that 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 got on your um, nerves this this was um frustrating for me because i turned around um and i said to like the missus like why <laughs> what is the whole point because if you know if she's gonna have sex with him fair enough that then there would have to be something that would trigger her to then kind of flip sides but it didn't it was just like a seamless you know she's you know like you said is tied up. She then like opens a um, a case of torture instruments. Oh, so he's you know you think he's going to get in, um, tortured? No, she cuts it and lets him go. Um, then, like you said, they have sex, and then she's gone to the trouble of getting an airplane flying up to how many thousands of feet in the sky to then press a button, which this board comes out to restrict bond. To then parachute out for then him to die in the sky. It just, ah, oh, it just frustrated me. This did. It, it just really frustrated me. Ludicrous. Yeah, it is ludicrous. And I think, you know, she gets what she deserves, doesn't it? You know, in terms of being eaten. You know, I'm going to talk about this next point. Um, so I'm just going to skip ahead, but she gets what she deserves in terms of the piranhas, um, which obviously. Um, Blofeld doesn't know that she's done a bit of hanky-panky um, with James Bond. So in terms of this next point, um, Blofeld tells, um, you know, Helga and Asata um, that they, they've let Bond go. Um, how, you know, had they, that they had Bond and let him get away. Um, but then the woman, you know, Helga says, but Bond is dead. It was all over the papers. But then at the beginning, when we saw that Bond was dead, it included um, a photo of Bond um, on the papers. So she's saying, oh, yeah, it's in the papers, therefore seeing the photo. But she just met Bond and he wasn't even transformed into a Japanese fisherman yet. And she's had sex with him, but she didn't recognize him. It just didn't add up. Any of that just didn't add up at all. So she definitely got this. I don't know how. Did you say she's number 11? I can't remember. I don't know how she's got to number 11 in Spectra. That is just oh, frustrating, that is. Is there anything you want to add to that, Andy, before I get on to um, the, the, Q? Yeah, no, I, I know to the point as well. It was, like you said, he's not disguised. It's not a secret that he's dead. Everyone knows what he looks like because he's on the front of national and international newspapers, which in, in itself is quite strange because if he is a spy which he is, why would you want to publicise the fact that one of your spies are dead? He might as well have, um, like, the start of season roll call and have, here are all the spies that we've got in play for the for the year ahead. <laughs> it's like, yeah, all kinds of things wrong with this. Yeah, so, um, yeah, that's frustrating. So, um, so we've had that, but he obviously survives. And then we, we see a bit later on Q, so again... Q is back out on location. You know, we said before that he, he's come out back on location. I think it was in Thunderball. In the previous episode, we said that. Um, 
But again, there's a bit of banter between Bond and Q that we've seen in the um, that we covered in previous episodes, and he, he makes a a little um, quip, a remark that um, Q is Nelly's father. Uh, so I thought that was funny. And then I, I quite liked the bit as well. And obviously, you know, this was filmed in the 60s, so there was limitations in terms of technology. Um, but I quite liked the bit where um, it comes in um, a number of suitcases and then on camera, you see them um, building it, like in terms of um, snapshots, kind of like, you know, and I, I quite enjoyed that bit in terms of them building Little Nelly. It kind of reminded me of um, like playing with Lego, building Lego. Um, in terms of you know little Nelly, so I, I quite like that bit, Andy. Yeah, Meccano. Meccano, yeah, to mind of, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, the the like the snapshot thing, like you said, is just kind of almost like an instruction manual. Here's here's how to build <laughs> little Nelly in six easy steps, yeah. <laughs> and it gives you the little pictures. That was, yeah, it's pretty good. So let's move on. So we're getting to the point now where um, Bond needs to become Japanese. Um, he's gonna he's gonna take on this new persona as a local Japanese fisherman, uh, and then there's a bunch of nurses there to help with the procedure, all in bikinis and lingerie. Um, not sure if that is medical um, uniform or of of normal practice. Um, maybe he's gone private and since the uniforms, but it's uh, certainly interesting attire for for medical procedures that are about to happen. That's for sure. Um, can I just add, Andy, I obviously, um, you know this, but I work in a hospital and I can confirm that is not normal work attire, um, underwear and laundry. Um, so let's talk about the procedure itself. Obviously, they need to uh, change his hair, they change his eyes. There's mention, I think, earlier in the film of Japanese men not having hairy chests and Bond has, has got a very thick, black, matted, hairy chest. Um, but no attempt to shave or wax or even slightly trim. Um, so he's he's not really taking this seriously, is he? You know, he's he's got some new hair, and he's he's got some fake eyebrows and fake eyelids. But from the neck down, no attempt at all to become Japanese. I don't think he's really bought into this. I agree. I think this whole subplot <laughs> was. Um... I don't know. We, it's obviously insensitive and, you know, looking back at it now, but um, I'm just trying to think, you know, live, how else they could have done it. Do you know what I mean? In terms of, uh, obviously it was supposed to be playing a local fisherman, but you could have just explained that, oh, um, this is my husband I'm a, and he's American or English. And he's living with me, or something, you know. Just, oh, did you know? Couldn't he be smuggled on the island and then just basically work covertly, uh, you know, to keep in the shadows? Why did they? Why did they have to do the whole marriage and the whole operation? It was just, oh, it just frustrates me. Uh, some of this film does. It's it's a a long term procedure for a short term mission. Um, you know, if, if he's going to have to assimilate to life and spend years and years on an island or, you know, you know, get entrenched into, into Spectre and become a, an agent himself or, or, or whatever, you know, whatever elaborate plot you can think of, then you can kind of see, well, okay, we need to go to a bit of trouble here, but um, this seems overkill 
and you know there are other ways to do it maybe just grow a beard put some sunglasses on you know wear a long coat yeah. um but medical procedures and becoming japanese and the like you said there are racial sensitivities around it uh very strange very unnecessary um doesn't doesn't stand up well i don't think this particular element no definitely not uh, final thing from from me before I let you take over is uh, Aki when she was killed. It's uh, quite a clever assassination, although completely accidental. Where the uh, the the assassin comes in, he climbs up to a, a space above above her and Bond in bed, and he's lowering down poison on a thread. He's got it perfectly lined up to to Bond's mouth, so he ingests the poison. When all of a sudden he rolls over slightly, and she rolls over to to greet him or kind of you know, snuggle to him or whatever and lo and behold she ingests the poison and dies pretty instantly uh, quite quite a, an interesting way of doing it i thought yeah i agree i thought it was clever also um i thought i was a bit sad for aki dying because she's she did she outwit bond earlier you know with the the bit in the tunnel where she's being chased and the 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 flooring um, you know, went down and Bond obviously then slid into Tanaka's lair. She obviously um, came to save Bond earlier, you know, when he was being just about to be gunned down outside of Asata's chemical work. So I was a bit sad to see her die. So, yeah. And then obviously then he goes off, doesn't he, and gets married. <laughs> That's pretty much in the next few scenes. So um, the, the, this next bit, so um, the missus was quite vocal about this bit because I just, I just took it. I did. So the, when Bond and Tanaka together, the, um, the lined up and these um, would be brides are being brought out. And <laughs> the missus was just like, Oh my God, did you see that Bond's face? He's so shallow and vain because they're like, he just has this look of, I want I don't know if you say disgust, but like, disappointment you know when the the first couple of potential buyers comes out and she was just having a bit of a rant about it so um like i said in the, the wife bed at the beginning um, she was quite vocal about it whereas i just kind of rolled with it and just you know that's that's to be expected with james bond really um yeah it's, it's, it's a little bit a little bit underhand isn't it i think as well it brought brought back to to mind what happened just a few minutes early where they were talking about the idea of getting married and i think bond asks tanaka is she much to look at or is she good looking whatever the words were <laughs> said and and tanaka i'm assuming he was joking uh basically said oh no she's got a face like a pig and uh maybe this is what brings on his um his look of disappointment when when these women are coming up the stairs to the marriage but none of them were pig-like in any way there were you know some were slightly older women and some more attractive than others but i mean come on james you know play the part and it's on a mission it doesn't really care what um she looks like uh, and then they so obviously then we introduced to um kissy suzuki um and one of the things and i know we've we've, we've mentioned this in previous episodes and it, it's just a time that isn't it that this was filmed the it was just so evident that, that when they go fishing it's just a fake background um in terms of the sea and island as well 
Um, and I don't know if you picked up on this, Andy, um, but again, the missus was very vocal about this, that basically from now on, um, Kissy Suzuki is pretty much wearing a bikini in every scene where as Bond is wearing um, like a um, kind of like a shirt or shorts. There's some bits where, you know, he is um, like, you know, dressed uh, you know, yeah, he does, you know, have a, a um, like, you know, you can see um, like he takes his shirt off or something like that, but she's just constantly in a bikini um, for the, the pretty much the majority of the movie. And then there, there's another bit um, before you kind of um, kind of feed in um, a continuity mistake where um, the missus picked this up as well, where so Bon and Kissy um, jump into the ocean, you know, where they go to the, the cave, where the, so they basically veer off from the other fishermen and they go to the cave and obviously there's a um, poisonous gas. So they jump into the water and um, you can see through, you can see Bond's skin basically through his wet shirt. So they then obviously come ashore onto Blofeld Volcano Island. And then they obviously make that journey up to the top of the rim of the um, volcano. And then um, they start um, descending. <laughs> when he realizes it's um like a metal hanging door instead of um like water he then starts whipping out like these suction cups and this gray um outfit underneath and he's like oh, where did that come from he wasn't even carrying a backpack or anything he just like i don't know you know if you if you noticed that but like um the missus picked up straight away like where's those suction cups come from <laughs> like you weren't carrying a bag uh, so that's just yeah, like a continuity um, mistake there. He's, I, I dread to think where he was hiding those. I mean, like you said, he's clearly not wearing them underneath his clothing. And uh, and Kissy's not wearing any clothing of note to hide anything underneath anyway. Um, unless they're just, you know, it's just these things that they have lying around at the top of volcanoes just on the off chance. <laughs> but, um, yeah, very, very, very bizarre. Um, we get into the volcano. Now it's all kicking off, and uh, Blofeld's got his cat, although he's struggling to keep hold of the cat, and maybe the cat shouldn't be involved in these kind of fight scenes, to be honest, because clearly quite terrified. And I don't, I don't know if it was meant for the cat to to jump down or you know be scared, but clearly he was having a hard time keeping hold of it. Um, another thing, not about Blofeld, but more just baddies in general, and particularly noticeable in this, is they've all they all seem to like old artwork. It's that kind of a Baddie 101, you know, dummy's guide to how to be a baddie, you know, step one, buy some artwork, step two, renovate a volcano, you know, those those kind of things, um, very, very bizarre, but they, they always seem to like like their artwork. Yeah, and you obviously mentioned this, Andy, earlier, talk, I just thought about it, actually, where, you know, megalomaniacs or villains always tend to have some kind of art um artwork in there and it's always kind of old artwork isn't it but you obviously mentioned about m having um his um submarine done up so maybe it's people in positions of power that just like to um express themselves or show off what their art collection you might have a point there maybe the m stands for megalomaniac <laughs> uh, i know that's maybe. not correct but you know i'm sure someone will correct me on twitter for later on but for, for the purpose of this that's what the m stands for from now on <laughs> we're getting close to the uh the business end now of of this film so we're at the volcano um the ninjas appear 
that, that Tanaka had been training down at his ninja school. And they're all repelling into the into the volcano via the the sort of the hangar door that you know covers the the top of the volcano. This scene bothered me, and I, I briefly touched on this earlier, but this this bothered me because they're all coming from the outside and they need to kind of repel into the facility, but all the ropes are already tied to the underside of the roof, so that means they must have got under they must have got in to tie their ropes to the underside as opposed to tying them somewhere on the outside and then lowering in. And also, they didn't all just come down at once. There were like waves of ninjas coming down for, for several minutes. It wasn't just like, you know, two or three. It was quite a significant time period. There were ninjas still coming down, still coming down, still coming down, even after the the roof had been closed. So... I just wonder how that happened. Were there, did they all come at once, but then a load of them stayed behind? Or did they somehow get another means of entry after the roof was closed? It just it didn't make sense that we know the roof's closed, we know the ninjas are there, but yeah, here's some more ninjas, and oh, here's some more ninjas. Um, really, really kind of put a downer on that particular scene for me. It's Yeah, it's interesting. Um, the first thought that comes to mind is um, you touched upon video games earlier. They probably just respawned, Andy. You know, like in video games, when you die, they just respawn. So they probably got a checkpoint, um, a respawn point um, above. But yeah, this was, like I said earlier, one of my favorite scenes. But yeah, I get your point in terms of how um, they were descending into um, the, you know, volcano's lair. Um, but yeah, no, that, that is a, a valid point. Yeah, other than that, I think, it, you know, it was a pretty good scene. There was, you know, the usual kind of fighting went off and then. Uh, Blofeld, I believe, blows up the volcano. So we get the explosion and we get the lava um, coming out. And we've we've talked about use of special effects and green screen and, and things of that nature. I thought this particular scene and you know it put a little bit more of a downer on the film because it's it's so vital to the overall story and it's right at the end of the film. The use of special effects here, I thought, were really really bad. Like probably the worst I've seen in any of the Bond films we've seen so far. Like it, it just wasn't even remotely realistic. I don't know what you thought about that. I noticed it, and I I thought it was obviously you know in terms of the intro sequence, you had the volcano and you had the the lava in the intro sequence. I agree, and we obviously talk about opening credits rankings later. Um, but I thought it was poor. I've just tried to think whether it was the worst special effects in it. I'm thinking about early blood, you know, the really bright blood that we're in Doctor Now. Um, we've had some fast scenes as well, you know, unneeded fast scenes, which did you, did you recall any fast scenes in this? I didn't uh, notice it, actually, because we've commented in the last two films, haven't we? That there were fast scenes, but I like sped up, um, sped up scenes. I don't recall anything from this one. Yeah, nothing, nothing stood out um, and I have been looking out for those kind of things just because they were so noticeable in the last two films yeah, um, yeah nothing, nothing of that nature this time round yeah um, is there anything else Andy in terms of um, the film yeah the, I guess the, the final part obviously Bond Kissy Tanaka and the ninjas escape it looks like they escaped down the same route that had the poisonous gas um which is either a continuity error or I've mistaken or 
but it was a mistake somewhere, but it very much looked like the same route. I thought it looked the same route as well. And I thought, oh, what happened to the poisonous gas? And I, I said to the missus then, I said like, oh, have they just come out the same way? Because if they have, they, you saw that bit, didn't you, where they were swimming, it looked like basically at the beginning of some kind of, um, what they call it in the events where you do like swimming, cycling and running. Oh, the triathlon. Yeah. So it looked like, you know, at the beginning, there's just load of basically swimmers. You just see heads. When they're escaping at the end, it did the, the, the camera shot was behind the swimmers and it just looked like it was like the beginning of a race. And I thought it was the the, the same route that they took earlier. So, yeah, I wonder if it's a continuity error or it just happened to have multiple escapes from this secret layer. Um, so it can't have been that secure. Um, so I think that's it, isn't it? And in terms of our observations before we kind of move on to the one-liners, is there anything yeah, else I think that we The one thing I didn't write down, and I guess this is a given at this point, the film ends with, with Bond and Kissy shagging in the boat. <laughs> Which is just a, a recurring thing um, in terms of how Bond films um, end. He's always waiting to be rescued. I would love it because when that happened um, in terms of them escaping um, the, I don't know if it's a Navy or the Japanese um, secret service or whoever basically dropped the inflatable boats, haven't they, at the end. And I was thinking, I'd love to be one of the ninjas that just basically went on the same boat of them just to make it awkward. Because if you notice, like you're seeing five or six men basically go into one boat and then you just see Bond. Um, and Kissy just go on the boat on their own. I'd love to be kind of like the um, the third, you know, what is it? What's what's the saying? You know, um, that, that third wheel. Yeah, the third the wheel. Goosebumps. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, it bottle. raises a good point though, because if if these boats can fit five or six people, which it clearly could, if they just sent enough boats for the amount of ninjas that survived, does that mean <laughs> there's three or four still floating out in the sea because they had nowhere to go? It kind of reminds me of what happened to Leonardo DiCaprio in Titanic where he basically just didn't have a boat because he would just, um, is it Rose? What's her name? Is it Rose and Titanic? You know, um, Kate Winslet character. Yeah, um, she, yeah. She has that door all to herself. Yeah. Plenty of room Can't on you. that door, love. Come on. <laughs> yeah, so um, that's that in terms of observation. So as we do for each of the episodes and movies, we kind of pick out some of our one-liners or kind of, quotes interactions between um some of the characters so um andy i'm gonna go first so um we kind of touched on this earlier actually it's one of your points so this is between bond and tanaka so tiger tanaka um, says you know what it is about you that fascinates them don't you it's the hair on your chest japanese men all have beautiful bare skin and then bond replies japanese proverb says bird never makes nest in bear tree so that's kind of like the one of the ones I picked out, Andy. What about um, you? Uh, so there's uh, the scene where Blofeld introduced himself to Bond. Um, James Bond, allow me to introduce myself. I am Ernst Stavro Blofeld. They told me you were assassinated in Hong Kong. Bond replies, yes, this is my second life. To which Blofeld replies, you only live twice, Mr. Bond. Yeah, I like that because obviously it ties into um, the title of the film. So that is a, a good quote. Um, this one, I'm just uh, having a little laugh because when this happened, the missus again was having a little mini rant about this one. And it did, I did think, oh, you, I don't think you could say that now. 
And so this is between, maybe I shouldn't be laughing, I'm being insensitive, but the, the, the interaction is between Bond and Ling, which is obviously at the beginning, um, just before he gets gone down um, in the folding bed. So Bond says, why do Chinese girls taste different from all other girls? And then Ling goes, you think we better, huh? And then Bond says, no, just different. Like Peking duck is different from Russian caviar, but I love them both. And then Ling is like walking and she says, darling, I give you very best duck. And <laughs> it, just, it just made me laugh when that happened. But um, yeah, the missus was having a little rant about um, being sexist and racist and chauvinist <laughs> big he was. Uh, she didn't, yeah, she, she wasn't keen on Bond in this one. Even though at the beginning I said this was, um, she did say this was one of the better films, <laughs> but uh, you know, generally not necessarily about James Bond. And so that's the last quote uh, or one line is that I got Andy. Uh, do you want to finish us off? Because uh, there's a couple more that you want to kind of cover. Yeah, there's there's a a part in the uh, I think it's at the uh, where where Bond gets down the tunnel and he meets Tanaka for the first time, and Tanaka says it can save your your life this cigarette and bond responds you sound like a commercial which i thought was, was quite you know nice little quip um and they kind of the play on you know cigarettes obviously being bad for you but can save your life and then the final one is uh when bond and money penny are having their brief interaction on the submarine money penny says oh by the way how was the girl and bond replies which girl the one we set you up with in hong kong uh, well five more minutes and i would have found out that's um you know it's clearly uh, obvious what he's implying there. Yes. Yes. So obviously, yeah, that's the, the bit at the beginning before, like you said, he, he's gone down. So another thing that we're, we're doing, and obviously, Andy, we can only do this for so many movies because um, we've still got a lot of movies to do this. Um, but this little kind of um, feature is the differences. We're, we're not going to go into detail. We're just going to pick out some differences between the the book and the movie. Um and as Andy mentioned at the beginning, this, the, the book and the movie are very different. They're, they've only basically, you know, we said about Rodal basically having a clean slate. Um, and, you know, he, he basically wrote, we only kept certain elements of the book. So in terms of the book, this is actually the, the final appearance that we see of Blofeld in the novels. Um, whereas obviously in the film, and I mentioned this earlier, they the change the ordering so this is the first time we actually see um, Blofeld full on-screen appearance but obviously in the book this is the last time that we um we saw him um also in the book so this is obviously you know because it's a series in terms of the books and the films to to be honest as well um they carry on so in terms of the book on a magic secret service um, was the book before this one. So Blofeld obviously kills Bond's wife in the Majesty's Secret Service. So in the book, Blofeld has um, fleed Europe and gone to Japan, and he's obviously got that volcano um, hideaway now. And so that's obviously a big difference um, in terms of the book and the movie. Um, and also in the book, um, Bond is actually injured and he develops um, amnesia. And he, he basically ends up briefly living, um, as, as we do um, in the film, as um, the husband of Kissy, Suzuki. Um, but he's actually captured by the KGB, who end up brainwashing him. And then that leads on to the next novel, um, novel 
which is obviously the the mat in terms of the box is the man with the golden gun. So I thought that was some interesting points. It was a bit harder, this feature, because obviously, as we know at the beginning, they changed so much of it. So, it, you know, there's so many differences. Um, Andy, is there anything you want to touch on in terms of those kind of um, things that we covered in terms of book first movie before we move on to the, the big feature, which is the quiz? Yeah, look, can I add one point in here? Because yeah. um, as I was doing some research, and I didn't, I didn't note this down because this was quite a a late thing that I found out, but uh, did you know that in the books, uh, James Bond and Kissy Suzuki have a son? No, I didn't know that. Yeah, they have, they have a son together. James Suzuki is, is his name, and um, the Unlived Twice novel is, is, is the first time this character appears, although I believe he's unnamed at this point, but he does appear in future books, um, yeah. and he is, he is the son of Bond. And I, I had no idea that was that was even considered um, in the novels. I've not, I've not read the novels. I've read, I've read some of the short stories, but I've not read any of the novels. Uh, but yeah, James Bond has a son in in the books. That's interesting. That, and I'm going to have to do a bit of research because obviously he doesn't have a son in the film, um, as you know, as you just highlighted in terms of the difference. And I wonder. Because I've read uh, some books, but not many. And I don't recall um, the son appearing in those books. But like I said, I think I've only read two or three. <clears throat> and then I've read some that were set um, when Pierce Brosnan was the Bond. So like, you know, at that time as well. So yeah, it'd be interesting to see whether he does make appearances or how much of an, um, an input uh, in terms of the, the stories in the novel or if it's just basically you know, in a background, does he live with the mum? Is he, you know, Bond's obviously in England, Kissy Suzuki and his son is in Japan. I don't know. We're going to have to, um, I think, dig a bit deeper in that one, Andy, I think. I'm, I'm thinking I need to... Bit of homework for someone you. ...to buy me the books for like a future birthday or Christmas present or something. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, so thank you, Andy, for that. So um, the quiz, so let me just pull up the quiz so as people uh, you know listeners have been listening to the other four episodes will you know will know about this so this is the kind of like this the segment where i will give andy four statements and andy will identify what two statements are correct so from memory andy because i am you know my memory is getting worse as i get older you have got every week right, except for one. Is that right? That sounds about right. I remember I was on a roll and then you decided yes. to change the rules because <laughs> you didn't like my constant success. Yes. And then I think See. that's when I got one out of two and then I'm back to winning ways. Yes, I, I think that was um, Goldfinger. Yeah, so the first two, there was one statement that was right and then I mixed it up for Goldfinger, where I doubled that to make it two statements. Um, and then you got them right last week on Fundable. So, yeah, so this is the fifth one. And if I'm so being you honest... you say mixed it up, I say fixed. <laughs> like Semantics. I said, by adding an extra statement that is correct, I'm basically giving you now a 50-50 chance. <laughs> Surely that's that making it easier. Or are you making it doubly hard because I've got two to find rather than one? <laughs> um, 
yeah, I suppose. Listeners can decide. They, yes. they know where to send their hate tweets. Um, <laughs> use, use the hashtag JScrewedAndy. <laughs> okay. Um, and if I'm being honest, Andy, I'm struggling to think of these now. <laughs> I'm going to have this. I'm going to have a question <laughs> in every James Bond episode that we do. So I'm going to do it for all 25 films. I'm just struggling to think of fake answers. If I'm honest, even on episode 25, I mean, <laughs> I'm number five, episode five, and I've got 20 more to go. Um, so I need to be a bit creative. So I'm going to, I'm going to say all four. Um, and like, you know, like I said, each week, I let you either just pick them or let me go through all more. I'm happy, you know, to take your lead. So the first statement is this correct or incorrect? This marks the final on-screen appearance between Sean Connery and Lois Maxwell, who plays Miss Moneypenny. So would you like me to go to statement number two? Let's go to statement two, yeah. Okay. The, the volcano set had to be partially rebuilt as the sliding hangar doors kept getting stuck during the final fight scenes. Okay. The third statement. Nancy Sinatra was the first non-British singer to perform the theme song for James Bond. And the last statement and the running theme in these statements. My granddad was in the crowd during the sumo wrestling fight in Tokyo. So just to recap, two of those are correct and two of those are wrong. Do you want me to repeat any of them, Andy? No, I think, I think I've got them straight away. Your granddad is a liar. Oh, yes. You know, he, he's got a lot to answer for as granddad laws because he keeps coming up with these stories that he's telling you every week and yes. they're never true. He, I don't know if I told you this. I can't remember if I told you this or not. He was in the Navy, just so you know. So he has traveled around the world and I can't remember. It's not so much like an uncle Albert from only fools and horses, but he has told me some stories and I can't remember if he, if he ever went to Japan or not, but yes, okay. that is, that is right. That it is incorrect. So that's definitely incorrect. Now the first one. Um, okay. So the last meeting between, Sean Connery and Lois Maxwell. This marks, yeah, so the, the statement yeah. was, this marks the final on-screen appearance between Sean Connery, who's obviously James Bond, and Lois Maxwell, who plays Miss Moneypenny. So we know that Connery's going to come back for another Bond film in 71. We know that Lois Maxwell is in quite a lot of Bond films, possibly all of them to a point um, later on. And there's also, I don't know if this counts or not but i believe she was in was she in never say never again which i know is not an official bond i'm not sure if she replies maybe no so maybe she didn't reprise the role this so i'm gonna say that they are in the next one that connery does together which is diamonds are forever so therefore that statement is also false okay so that would leave the volcano set being partially rebuilt because the sliding hangar doors were getting stuck during the fight scene. I can scenes. believe that, yeah. 
and Nancy Sinatra was the first non-British singer to perform the theme song for James Bond because she's American. Andy, that is incorrect. So Darn it. the so it so this does actually mark the final on-screen appearance between Sean Connery and Lois Maxwell. So in Diamonds Are Forever, well done for saying the year 1971. You don't get any bonus points though. So well done, but pat on the back, but no bonus points. Um, they actually the scene that they filmed, and they didn't actually film it together. They had to film it separately. So Sean Connery filmed his line separately and then they did the Lois Maxwell scenes. So they weren't actually on screen together. So this is actually okay. the, the final on-screen appearance in terms of the official James Bond films. Like you said, I'm not too sure if um, they're in Never Say Never Again. But yeah, in terms of the, the canon, um, this is actually yeah the final on-screen appearance. Um, so that means the volcano one is incorrect it wasn't partially rebuilt because sliding doors um so were you confident on nancy sinatra because i i I, obviously we've had four songs but the first one was just the the music wasn't it that we we've covered in episode one and then we had matt monroe and tom jones um not tom jones um yeah shirley bassey then Tom tom jones Um, Matt Monroe is the one that yeah, that's same there. Yeah, I when I was researching this to come up with with the four questions, I thinking, oh, Tom Jones is easy, Shirley Bass is easy, and then I'm thinking, obviously, the first one's just the the music, and I'm thinking, oh, it's Matt Monroe. Is is would he think that is easy English? And he he is British, so um, so yeah, so Nancy Sinatra is the first non-British singer. So. well done for getting um, the my granddad was not in Tokyo during this, so well done for that. Um, and I think when we watch Diamonds Are Forever, um, we can obviously you can see that scene, can't we? And Indeed. see if it's obvious or not that it was done separately. Must have been clever camera angles to make it look like because um, apparent. Well, you know, from this research, what happens is Miss Moneypenny gives Bond his travel documents but it wasn't actually filmed together. So they must have done it, obviously, yeah. you know, different camera angles. She probably emailed him. <laughs> yes. Uh, if only they had emails, then it would be so much um, more impersonal. They wouldn't be able to flirt there, would they? They wouldn't be able to do it, their little it, flirt. It'd, it'd just be sending um, emojis, like of the, the peach and the uh, <laughs> aubergine. Aubergine. Evie, always in trouble with HR, wasn't he, Bond? Oh, yeah. Imagine him going in HR and reading out some of those text messages. <laughs> Would not like to be in that meeting, that's for sure. Okay, so um, our next part. So let me just bring up um, listeners, just ignore this bit. I'm just going to share the screen with Andy and we're just going to go through our rankings now. So we do this um, each episode. So we, we, we touched on these first few bits already at the beginning. So Andy, as you said, You Only Live Twice is kind of, um, like you said, they're always around the same, but it actually comes in at number two in terms of one time. So the last film that we watched was the the first film, as we mentioned in the last episode, that breaks the two-hour mark. So as Andy mentioned earlier, this one clocks in at one hour, 57 minutes. As I mentioned earlier as well at the beginning, um, 
this does have the highest kill count. So James Bond has, so this is, we're only counting James Bond kills, um, as we mentioned before. So this is 21 kills. And Andy, as we've covered this before in the previous episode, Thunderball was 20. Now I did, you know, as listeners know, we're watching these each week and we're reviewing them now. I didn't watch another film, Andy, but I did do a little sneak peek in the future. And because I was thinking, we, we're not monitoring this, but obviously we know all these are Sean Connery kills. I was thinking, should we do a kill count per Bond actor? How many does, say, Sean Connery kill as James Bond? I know, obviously, it won't be fair on George Lazenby and Timothy Dalton because they appeared in fewer films. But I wondered, is, is there a big discrepancy between kill counts between actors that appeared in... We could work out an average, can't we? But I, I don't, do average, is that something yeah. that you think is worth tracking going yeah, forward? Who is who is the deadliest Bond? Deadliest Bond, I like it. Yeah. We can um, we can kind of get that trademarked. <laughs> um, but yeah. So um, martinis. Obviously, we mentioned um, at the beginning. So we're, we're tracking martinis. So we've had five films so martinis is drunk and martini in dot to know goldfinger and you only live twice which i'm a bit surprised andy because we've had five films and two of those films he hasn't had a martini i thought that was a bit of a given same with the james bond quote you know i thought that was was a a real staple of the, the series but so far we've been proven wrong yeah so you know in terms of the iconic james bond um you know you know his introduction you know, I said at the beginning, he doesn't say it in um, this film. So what we do usually is just time it. So we've had five films. He's only actually said it twice, Andy, in Doctor No at 7 minute 40 seconds and in Goldfinger at 11 minute 33 seconds. I personally think as this series has got, the, the franchise has got more popular, I think we're going to start seeing it in more films. I think it's only at the beginning where... You know where it's not kind of setting the the trend, so to speak. I think we're going to see it in a lot more of the the other films later on. Yeah, I think you're right. I think once it becomes sort of almost romanticised as a as a staple of of the films, then it becomes a you know how do you get this into the script every time? <laughs> but we shall see. Whereas this is the opposite way, I think. So the next bit um, is the hat watch that Andy mentioned. So we're tracking hat throws and wearing a hat. So as Andy mentioned at the beginning, he he said, um, he said hat throw is a yes and wearing a hat. And that's actually at the beginning, isn't it? In terms of the, um, just after the funeral, where he's brought onto the submarine and he's in his full kit, um, commander Navy, uh, naval, um, uniform and he, he, he throws his hat um I've, I've never mentioned this before but i am keen to see what movie it is where bond stops wearing a hat because obviously we tracked it so in the first five films he's wore a hat in every movie so far two of those movies he doesn't do the hat throw so like we said in goldfinger episode miss money penny does it and then in the previous episode andy mentioned this where the hat stand is actually being placed near the entrance so he doesn't throw it. But like I said, I, f- I know, I'm sure I say this each episode. I'm intrigued to see when it is. Because from memory, I don't recall Roger Moore wearing hats. But maybe, because I haven't seen a Roger Moore film for years. Whereas Sean Connery, I do think, when I think back, oh yeah, he, he wore a hat. And same with the gun barrel scene. 
you know, the, the opening sequence, you know, would have gone bad. Or you can see the silhouette with a hat. I'm trying to think, when does that stop as well? Yeah, Roger Moore doesn't strike me as a hat guy. No. I agree. Whereas if I was Bond, I would be wearing a hat. So Felix Leiter, again, we're tracking whether um, Felix appears in, the mo- in each movie. Uh, and, you know, Andy has mentioned this um, in a previous episode, the number of times that Felix appears, but also being played by different actors. So he's not appeared in You Only Live Twice. Now, Bond Girl. So this is where um, we see some variation. So we've had, we've had five Bond films and we've had 20 bond girls andy so that's quite good going isn't it um at the moment um this league table's really starting to take shape now shall i shall i go with my yes feelings on this first so in terms of the film itself we've got four bond girls we've got aki we've got kissy we've got ling and we've got helga and i say them in that order because that's the order i placed the four of them in, in terms of the film. So Aki was my favorite Bond girl in this film. I think she was not only very beautiful, but also very smart as well. And, and like you said, she outwitted Bond early on and she's, you know, there seemed to be um, a bit more substance to her. She wasn't just eye candy. She was actually quite a smart girl. So she, she topped the list in terms of this film for me. And in terms of the overall placings of the five so far, I've got her in eighth place out of 20, right underneath Paula Kaplan and right above Patricia Fearing, both from the film Thunderball. In second place for the film, and then in 10th overall, I've got Kissy. Um, so just below uh, Patricia. Obviously, Kissy plays the role of Bond's wife, always in a bikini. That's, that's going to get bonus points. But is a really, you know, a typical piece of eye candy in the in the sense of the word that she is there just to look good um that is that is her role in the film pretty much um further down we've got ling who we saw a brief appearance at the start of the film i've got her down in 14th overall um below dink and above tilly masterson both from the goldfinger uh, film and then in 18th out of 20th and only zora and vida keep her off the bottom spot is helga brandt who um I don't know. I didn't really take to her as a Bond girl, um, but also not helped by that ridiculous scene that we spoke about earlier where she just throws herself at Bond even though she's supposed to be keeping him captive and the elaborate way she tries to kill him. Um, yeah, that that ruined her mystique for me somewhat. Uh, you've got a slightly different take on things. How, how have you ranked ladies? Yeah, so um, this is getting difficult, Andy, if I'm being honest. And I think in terms of the podcast um, listeners, it's definitely worthwhile checking out our website because we've got the information on the website. So obviously previous episodes, we've, we've listed them all, haven't we, Andy? But now we've got 20. It's a bit unrealistic to to you know do the orders for both of us because obviously then that's 40 um, people that we're kind of covering, 40 characters. So, I mean... You've got Aki in at number eight and you're number one from this film. 
I've done the same, but I've actually put her in at number seven. So just under Jill Masterson, who's obviously um, the golden lady from um, Goldfinger. Um, and then I put in Kissy Suzuki um, at number eight, whereas you put her in at number 10. So in terms of the order, you know, between both our um, Bond girls there is the same. We've just got um, some slight differences in terms of how they, they kind of slot into the league table. Um, we do have difference, though, with um, Helga. So I actually put Helga in third place in terms of the Only Live Twice Bond girls, but overall in terms of 14th. Um, I don't think, like, you know, what you just said, um, I think as a Bond girl character, I think she's quite weak because of the things that we mentioned in the earlier episode. But she's higher than Ling just because she's, um, she has more screen time. Lynn has that intro bit at the beginning um, and then you you don't see her anymore. So Helga's gone in at 14, so just below Tilly Martison um, and just above Vida from, from What Should We Love? And Ling has gone in at 17, so just below Zora from, from What Should We Love? And just above uh, Mademoiselle Laporte from Thunderball. So, Andy, do you want to just kind of, um, do you want to do the, the theme song and the opening credits? Or kick us off? Yeah, so the, so the theme song, obviously, you know, it's by Nancy Sinatra. I thought there's a really strong song. Um, I've got this in at second, just below Goldfinger by Shirley Bassey, which remains the, the kind of the, the gold standard, if you were, if you excuse the pun. Um, but a, a strong effort, uh, number two in terms of songs for me. Yeah, and Andy, I changed this because I, when I originally pulled this together after um, I watched the film, and, and and I think I mentioned this on previous last week's episode, I've been listening to uh, a lot of the James Bond songs um, when I'm kind of typing up notes, but also kind of just in the background anyway. And and for listeners, um, Andy's actually pulled together a Spotify playlist for anyone that kind of wants to to kind of um listen and um listen to the the playlist so what we can do andy when we release this episode um we can put a link online and share that if that's okay with you so i've actually put you only live twice number two it was very close between that and from the war if i'm honest um i was doing an hour in between second place and third place i thought yeah like you said goldfinger shirley bassey is out there at number one um, and then I've got Dr. No in terms of the James Bond theme by Monty Norman, John Barry as number four. Um, so I, I do, it was very close. It was not, it was nowhere near as good as Goldfinger. And it was very close between Thunderball um, and You Only Live Twice. But it's a, a, a very good entry in terms of the, the Bond um, theme song series. Yeah, I'd agree. However, from a credits perspective i was a little bit disappointed with the with the opening credit sequence i think before this week i had gone with the the trend that each one was better than the last um so i've currently got thunderball in my number one slot in terms of the the credits but i've got you're gonna live twice down at number four out of five um obviously we've got the that we talked about we've got the volcanoes and we've got the silhouettes of the of the ladies but it seemed somewhat haphazard to me and um not not very well thought out i thought just n not as 
in, not as inventive as, as what we saw from from Thunderball or Goldfinger. Yeah, so I I agree. I'm just looking at the list, Andy, because we, we have got a bit of variation, haven't we, between what we have got. So so you put you only live twice in at number four, whereas I've done it in at number three because I I felt it was better than from Russia with Love, which you've got in third place opposed to where I've got it in fourth place. So those these two movies have switched around between our list. The thing that swung it for me was from Russia with Love was the first Bond movie to include those kind of iconic, sexy ladies, silhouettes, you know, dancing um, in the intro sequence. Um, and we have, we've, we've seen the same now um, in each of the other movies, whereas this one for me, there does seem to be more, uh, more of, but I liked how this is obviously, obviously set in Japan. And I liked how then that influence was kind of seeping into the, the opening credits. Uh, so I quite enjoyed that. And obviously we discussed this in previous episodes, but I've got Goldfinger's number one and Thunderball's number two, whereas you've got Thunderball's number one and Goldfinger number two. So Andy, next one is villains. Do you want to um, just go for your villains? Villains, yes. Yeah. So, so technically three villains uh, in this. We've got Blofeld again. We've got Helga, who's a Bond girl and a Bond villain. So the first time we've got crossover on the list. Then we've got Mr. Osato. Um, across the franchise, we've got 11 villains overall. We've got Blofeld appearing multiple times, which we've explained. We're talking about the, the instance of the villain in the film, not necessarily the, the overarching character across multiple films. So in this instance, I've got Blofeld from, from this film as three in total and the highest position of any of the Blofeld uh, characters that we've seen so far. So I've got Goldfinger and Oddjob in at one and two, but Blofeld in this really, really stood out and kind of upped his game for me. I think last time out, I said in Thunderball that he was largely irrelevant, whereas this time around, he was very pivotal to what was going on, so a very strong outing. Um, I've got Helga in second in the film and, and sixth in total. Um, what she lacked in being a Bond girl, she made up for in being a villain. Um, and obviously being, you know, one of the associates of Spectre gave her that, that power as well. It was just, you know, some of it was let down by her, her silliness in wanting to have sex with the man she was supposed to be wanting to kill. Um, but as a villain, some some strong scenes. And then finally, Mr. Sato, I've got him at his dead last. Seemed somewhat useless, in all honesty. But although, you know, he led his own firm and he's an associate of Spectre, didn't really seem to have control at any point and was actually quite weak in terms of villainous traits. Yeah, we've got some big variation between our list on this one. I'm just looking, Andy, and I'd love to know in terms of people that are either re-watching the films uh, alongside what we're doing or just listening and have that depth of knowledge in terms of um, Bond villain. So <clears throat> I've actually put in only slightly different Blofeld in from You Only Live Twice in the number two. So Red Grant, I've mentioned him before. I really like that character. He's actually moved down now to third place. So Goldfinger remains number one on both our list. I've actually put Mr. Asata and Helga in 10th and 11th. So they are at the bottom of my table. I just felt we obviously said this last week, Thunderball character, you know, villains were weak. I personally thought the only one that came out of this one with kind of any kind of credit, and I think it's the anticipation of the last 
four films, fifth film account in this one where Bluefield kind of um, saved it from a villain point of view. Um, we've, you know, you've obviously mentioned about um, how useless Helga was in terms of a villain and Mr. Sarta, apart from his office, his x-ray equipment, you know, when he's looking at um, Bond through his table with his gun and he made some um, comments about, um, what did he say about him not being, um, feeling safe or something, but he was talking about the cigarette, but obviously he's talking about the gun. Do you remember that bit? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, but we, we got some variation there. So I would be intrigued to see um, what other people think about that. I think, because looking at your list, obviously odd job is number two. I've got him at number four. I think, you know, there's not much difference there. He's, he's quite an iconic character, isn't he? A villain, odd job. Um, but these he's, last few... He's a few... henchman. He's a henchman, but he's... Yeah. He's very strong. He's very powerful, very menacing. So I think that, that for me, gets him so high up the list. Yeah, whereas these last two films, apart from, like I said, Blofeld, they, they have been a bit weaker, haven't they, I think, um, in yeah, terms I of, agree. you know, earlier on. Um, so, Andy, um, if I just pick up the, the the movies now, we've obviously given our score earlier, so, you know, um, when you know we both gave it six out of ten. I thought this was interesting, so... You know, just to recap my ones, Andy, before you do yours, I've got Goldfinger at number one as nine out of 10. From Russia We Love, eight out of 10. Then Fundable, third, but with seven out of 10. And then Dr. No, seven out of 10 at fourth um, position. So this is, in terms of my scoring, is the weakest one. And uh, so it goes in at number five. Um, Andy, you've obviously given your score earlier, but what, you know, how, does that change the ranking or? So I've got the same ranking as you in terms of one to five. Goldfinger is a clear front runner for me, but I've been um, a bit stingier on the marks for from Rush with Love, Thunderball, and Doctor No. I've gone seven six six for those, and I've also gone six for You Only Live Twice. I felt it was on par with Thunderball and Doctor No, but this the reason I've got this in at fifth um, as opposed to joint. You, know, you could argue joint third, but I'm trying to differentiate between the films. This is the one, the 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 one time I felt disappointed with with a film it, it felt flat to me it felt um you know the the funny lines were not quite as funny the some of the action scenes were not quite as good it, it just felt like it was lacking something um maybe maybe with connery announcing that this was his last one he was dare i say phoning it in a little bit um would be possibly an unfair thing to say um some of the use of special effects and green screen and stuff left me a bit disappointed and some of the you know ridiculousness in like the plot holes and things we've discussed just yeah left me feeling a little bit deflated when i was watching this so um it's 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 the worst one we've seen so far but you know still solid overall just you know with the the level we've seen up to now this one just fell a bit short for me yes brilliant um and then in terms of and the people looking at the website what we're doing as well Andy um, is we're ranking them within um, the films that they've done so obviously we've only done Sean Connery at the moment he's done six films we've done the first five so it's just the same as what we've just gone through at the moment um, and then what we are also going to do is rank the actors so at the moment we've only had Sean Connery so he's number one in both our list um, did we, and I'm sure we've covered this, but I can't remember if we went into any great detail, Andy. Um, so what we've done is we've 
we've made a, a list of in terms of the actors where we think in terms of one to six, who is our favorite, uh, who is our least favorite. Um, so, you know, one to six before we started rewatching these films. And then we're going to compare that list against the list that we've done after rewatching these films. I remember definitely doing the top two. Um, do you remember? <laughs> or, or shall we just basically um, just leave that for now? Because I remember doing the top two, but I can't remember um, if we did any more. I'm not sure if we did worst or not. But we may have just okay. done top two. Shall, no, we, might shall we just let like... this let this boil over for a few more weeks, yeah. just to to make sure we're not influencing our own decision. But um, as as things stand, I still feel quite confident with that ranking I've got in place. I think once we get into next week, obviously we've got Lazenby and his solo outing in um, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, and I wonder if. The fact that he only managed one, does that count for him or against him? Ultimately, you know, when we think of Sean Connery, he's had six chances to get it right. Lazenby was a was a one and done. So uh, I wonder how that affects his th his legacy, or also how it affects our thinking of his legacy. Whether it's it's fair or unfair to judge him based on one performance alone. So. Come next week, it'll be interesting to see what, what our thoughts are on, on Lazenby. Yeah, and I, th I think next week's episode might be a bit longer than this week's episode because he's a new actor. So it's the first time we've had to cover um, the transition from one actor to another. So we can spend a bit of time on that. Um, from memory, I know we're, we're doing the rankings after we, we re-watch them. But on a Majesty's Secret Service is a film that I remember being good and was one of my favourites from you know when I first watched the film. So I am looking forward to watching um, the film um, in preparation for next week's episode. So I am looking forward to that. Um, is there anything else, Andy, before we um, kind of sign off? No, I think that's um, that's the end of an era, at least for now, because. Uh... No, it's bye bye Sean Connery. Hello, George Lazenby. So let's see see how he fares. I'm I'm looking forward to this one. This is probably the one I'm I'm most looking forward to watching, even though it's probably the one I remember the least. Yes, and we can obviously cover it next week. Um, I remember the theme song. That is, um, you know, something that stands out and various things which we we can discuss next week. But yeah, so um, yeah, thank you. Hey, thanks, everybody. Well, that's this week's episode done. We hope you enjoyed it. Special thanks to the band Sugar Tongue for the theme tune to The Rating Room. You can find them on all the usual social media channels. And be sure to check out their song The System, available now on Spotify. You can find and message us on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok and Instagram by searching The Rating Room. You'll find all our social media links on our website, theratingroom.com, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Or feel free to drop us an email at theratingroom at gmail.com. Goodbye, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week, right here on The Rating Room.
Rain Room.